Welcome to What Were You Thinking with Rory Stewart as this week's guest. His experience is so vast and varied, but I had a go at finding out the who, what and where that have influenced him and his thinking. Our conversation covers many things. What made him get into politics and then get out of politics? What was it like walking across Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, India and Nepal for two years? We also discussed his time as prison minister, foreign minister, Conservative Party leader candidate and an independent candidate for London mayor. His experiences and insights are truly fascinating. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. And this podcast is supported by Tempest Novo, an award-winning charity that helps and supports people with criminal backgrounds find sustainable employment with suitable employers. The key to the prison crisis is not what happens in prison, it's what happens when prisoners leave and the key to solving the re-offending problem is employment. Tempest Novo is the liaison between ex-offenders and employers. They coach, counsel and mentor both the ex-offenders and managers to create a partnership, lifting people out of poverty and giving people who want to change their life an opportunity to do so. Rory, your personal story is a fascinating one and I can't wait to hear more about your many experiences and how they've helped shape your thinking over time. Most people might know you from your recent time in Westminster as a cabinet minister, contender in the Conservative Party leadership race and also as the independent candidate for London Mayor. But your career before your time in Westminster is also a fascinating one and I would love to know how your time before joining politics has impacted you and your thinking. I, I think, firstly, they probably uh, made me quite ill-equipped to be a politician. I didn't realise until I entered the House of Commons quite how many people had been in politics since their late teens, early 20s. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. People often complain about that and complain about professional politicians. What it means is that I was having to learn in my late 30s a lot of things that people had sort of taken in, as it were, with their mother's milk, that they didn't have to have to work out from scratch how the whips worked, what a party system was, or any of the unwritten rules of parliament. Uh, all I really knew of Parliament was very old-fashioned, books that I'd largely read about 18th and 19th century politics. And I was very surprised by so many of the modern realities of Parliament. So I think, if anything, my life before I came in, which was a life in which I'd spent, I suppose, most of the previous 15 years outside the United Kingdom, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Indonesia, and in the Balkans, made me a, a very odd person to become a politician. So can you tell me a bit more about your experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and what the big takeaways were for you from that period? Well, I think the first really fundamental thing that changed the way I thought about the world was walking uh, for 21 months across Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India and Nepal and staying in 550 village houses along the way. And the reason that changed things is that before then, before I did that in my late 20s, I had often been sitting in embassies and government offices talking about other people's countries, but I hadn't spent much time living in villages and rural areas. And I realized through that walk, particularly in Afghanistan, that there was a grotesque, vast gap between the way we in the West or in London or in embassies talked about those countries and what they were really like on the ground. I mean, such an astonishing gap 
that it was almost impossible to describe, even to somebody who wanted to listen, and many people didn't want to listen, what those countries were actually like and how mad so much of what we were trying to do in Iraq and Afghanistan consequently was. What is the cause of that gap in knowledge and inability to translate that into policy? Well, I think the first thing is that the people making the policy are not required to have spent a long time living in rural areas of those countries. At most, they will have spent a bit of time in an embassy, but embassies in Iraq and Afghanistan are compounds behind razor wire in which it's almost impossible for the diplomats to even leave their own little compound, let alone spend a night in an Afghan or an Iraqi village house. So they simply haven't spent time there. They're not required to spend time there. They very frequently don't begin to speak the local language. And even if they've been taught the language, they really haven't got a chance to talk to anyone from that country, apart from the few people that are employed in the embassy. So not surprisingly, what they say about those countries is very, very theoretical. It's taken sometimes if you're a development worker or a diplomat, from some half-remembered lesson from some other country. So maybe you're applying to Afghanistan what you thought should be done in Malawi. But more often than not, it will come from you know, a master's degree you did in international development or some paper that you half-read in a hurry. And nobody will really stop and say, but can you actually do this? And the reason nobody has that conversation is that you can't answer the question of what you can or can't do in those countries without knowing an incredible amount about them. And people are embarrassed to admit how little they know. So if you were to say, you're not going to be able to eliminate corruption in the police force in Helmand, or you're not going to be able to create a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and rule of law, how could you prove that to somebody that hadn't spent any time in that country? That's very interesting. I've always wanted to ask you about your 21 months long walk across Afghanistan, Pakistan, India and Nepal. I mean, what was that like? It's, it sounds like a real adventure. Well, it was a wonderful thing. I set off uh, with a pair of boots, a pack on my back, a very light pack. I didn't take a tent. I took a bivy bag around my sleeping bag. I didn't carry a stove. I was very much dependent on sleeping uh, in people's houses and I was so lucky with the hospitality that I was shown right the way across Asia. Out of, I think, 550 nights, there were only a handful that I actually spent out in the open because night after night, people would take me in, which was also wonderful for me because it meant as a traveler that I could listen to people talk about their lives and their families. And and in a sense, it was the people, ultimately more than the landscape, that really brought the place alive. I mean, there were some spectacular landscapes. I was very lucky to walk through central Afghanistan in the middle of the winter of 2001-2002 when there were deep blue skies, incredible glittering white snow. I was very lucky to walk through the Indian Himalayas uh, in the late spring, early summer. But a lot of the time, it wasn't really about uh, landscape. It was about people. You've obviously visited many, many places around the world. I'm very curious to know which place has had a real influence on your political thinking. So I think probably most recently, it would be times that I've spent in the northeast of England. So Easington Colliery, Hartlepool, areas where in ex-mining communities, I, you know, Easington Colliery, 
I was um, lucky enough to spend time with somebody who knew the area very well. And we went into house after house of people who were living very, very bleak and very disturbing lives. Again, in Hartlepool, there and in a food bank earlier in the morning, I saw things which I hadn't been familiar with my own constituency in Cumbria, Cumbria, Penrith and the border. I had a constituency which on paper had a lot of poverty, but it didn't have the what I felt was the extremity of despair and pain that I saw in some of those communities in the northeast of England. So fast forwarding a bit, whilst in Parliament, um, what were the areas and issues that you found yourself advocating for the most that you might not have expected to, considering your background? Well, the first thing I suppose is that I became very, very interested in rural issues and particularly small farms and making the case for small family farms which I felt was lost because either you had big farmers lobbying for agricultural industries or you had environmentalists lobbying for wilderness. And lost was the whole texture of Cumbria, which I felt was really the social structure of the place that I lived, which was family farms often in the northeast of my constituency, 60, 100 acre farms, people with 60 or 80 uh, cows uh, or maybe 100 sheep and the way in which they were everything. I mean, they were the culture of that place. They were the embodiment of tradition and of oral history. They were the people who had textured, created and sustained the landscape, kept the local schools going, kept the roads open, and yet were almost entirely ignored by policy. I couldn't persuade DEFRA to even agree to count the number of farms. And do you think that interest stems from your role as a constituency MP? Yes, I think it was very, very important to me that I was part of a system where we're very embedded in our constituencies and where I was able to report directly from that. I was also aware, though, that As an MP, your vision of a constituency is always a little bit partial. And probably if I was going to be self-critical, I tended to spend a lot of my time with farmers and particularly small farmers in rural areas. I may not have spent enough time um, with people in Penrith itself, many of whom were completely different. Uh, A lot of people who live in the Lake District are retired school teachers from Manchester, uh, confident, articulate people who aren't originally from Cumbria, but who've retired there and travel a lot and their culture, their life, their ideas is very different from people who, in some of the bits of my constituency, have been farming the same land for many, many hundreds of years. So after being a minister in the Foreign Office and DFID, Theresa May made you minister for prisons and I think it's fair to say that came as a bit of a surprise to many people in Westminster. Uh, Did that take you by surprise also? You're absolutely right. It was a complete surprise. I uh, was the Africa Minister. I just completed a complete review of our Africa strategy and just was the verge of presenting it to the National Security Council when they moved me, as you say, to become the Prisons Minister. They moved me to become the Prisons Minister, I think, unless I'm getting my sequences wrong, uh, because my predecessor had been shifted on somewhere else. Oh, no, I didn't really have it. Sorry, I didn't really have a predecessor in that role. Um, Anyway, whatever the complications of how I'd got the job, I arrived and I'd barely been in a prison since I had been teaching drama in Oxford prison as an undergraduate when I was in my late teens. And I remember walking onto the landing at Pentonville 
and just experiencing the wall of noise of 350 men unlocked on four landings on either side of you in a narrow corridor, all shouting at once. And the sense of need, violence had tripled in prisons over five years, and 30,000 prisoners were being assaulted every year. Drugs were increasing all the time. The, the prison system was an absolutely terrifying place, was the thing that I saw in British life, which was most extreme. One of the few places that I'd seen where I began to think that the needs and the savagery of the thing did feel to me more like Afghanistan. Uh, whereas in many other bits of British life, um, of course, one feels very fortunate not to be living in a, a developing country with all the problems that we have in Britain. We have many things which other people of the world couldn't even dream of. But in our prison system, I felt there was something really, really deeply and appallingly shameful. And how do you think that shaped your political views? Well, I think the, the first, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to be struck by the fact that it had been so neglected that nobody thought it was worthy of mention that we had 83,000 prisoners living in prisons built for 62,000 people, that we had prisoners living two to a cell in cells that the Victorians had built for one person, that people were often locked up 22, 23 hours a day, that there really wasn't any form of education taking place, that our reoffending rate was running at about 65% of the people who left prison reoffended and went back to prison again. And that this wasn't something that people talked about or cared about, predominantly. I mean, a few, a few people did, but basically people didn't. And I was, um, I think that was really odd. And it was also very odd when I tried to do something about it, how difficult it was to interest people in providing the money to try to solve this problem. Mm, I want, yeah, I, I wonder whether there's an element of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, one of the most amazing charities I I've come across actually is is Clink, who train prisoners in its restaurants before helping them to find employment in the hospitality industry upon release. And I went for lunch there and found it a very moving experience because, well, I mean, I'd never set foot in a prison before. And actually, I wouldn't be much surprised, actually, if you had more experience with prisons than most MPs before getting um, that ministerial role. But um, soon after, you got promoted to cabinet uh, when you were made International Development Secretary, which seemed like a great fit. Um, was that the type of role you were hoping to land when you first set foot in Westminster? I'm not quite sure what I hoped to do when I came into Westminster. I, if I'm honest, if I go back to the person that I was in 11 years ago coming in, I'd come in having been very, very lucky to be dealing at a very senior level with um, the US government and to some extent the UK government. So I'd been part of um, Obama's Afghanistan review with Richard Holbrook. I'd seen quite a lot of Hillary Clinton when she was the Secretary of State. I'd been running a centre at Harvard, which had half a dozen of the real Afghan experts in the world. And I therefore, and I then obviously been on the Foreign Affairs Committee and been Chairman of Defence Select Committee. So I probably would have assumed back then in my late 30s that the government would have used me quite quickly uh, in foreign affairs or defence, uh, as it was because I rebelled uh, on a vote 
the end of my first year, I didn't actually get any ministerial job for five years. It wasn't until my second term that I became a minister. So I had a very odd five years of on the back benches, really unable to do any of the things that I'd hoped to come into Parliament to do, unable to really change anything. And then I took over as environment minister and again was very struck by the fact that it didn't seem my predecessor had really wanted to change anything either. So I suppose when I took over at DFID, there was a sense um, that I was back roughly in the field that I'd wanted to be in. Uh, but if it doesn't sound, uh, it will sound pompous, but I probably would have hoped to be Foreign Secretary or Defence Secretary. And I felt still as, uh, as International Development Secretary that it was a role where, despite all its importance and despite its huge budget, was surprisingly marginalised, and it was more difficult from that role to really influence national security policy in the way that I would have liked to, even on the National Security Council. Mm, it's it's very striking. There are a couple of things that jump out to me from what you've just said. I mean, firstly, the WIP system. You alluded to it earlier that you hadn't really had you know prior experience in politics and therefore might not have appreciated the impact that one rebellion could have on your career that I suppose others, uh, other colleagues of you might have. And secondly, I agree with you that I would have thought the government and the party would want to make use of your experience. Um, do you think that is something that's led by politicians or is there also a wariness within the civil service? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and it, it is an interesting question because when I became a foreign office minister for the first time. I was the first foreign office minister appointed in that reshuffle by Theresa May. And the other foreign office ministers had been got rid of. So none of the um, areas of the world had been allocated. And I went in to see Boris Johnson and Simon MacDonald, who was the senior civil servant in the foreign office, and said to them, I'm very, very pleased to get this job. I'm really looking forward to it. But please, wherever you send me, um, send me to either the Middle East or Asia, because that's where I've spent most of the last 15 years of my life working. I speak three Asian languages. I've visited all those countries. In fact, I'd already just spent over a year working as the DFID minister for Middle East and Asia. So I also understood all our development programs in that country, and I'd served as a diplomat in those regions. And they laughed and said, um, we're going to send you to Uganda. Uh, and make you Africa minister. And I said, please don't do this. This is such a waste. I mean, I've spent 15 years studying the Middle East and Asia, writing about them. That's all my knowledge. I'll hit the ground running. You'll get so much more benefit from me using me on the part of the world that I want. And they wouldn't do it. And I think that wasn't just Boris. I think that was also Simon MacDonald, the permanent secretary, wasn't comfortable with the idea of, of having me in those roles. And and I can see why. I mean, it was an odd, it could be an odd relationship. When I was the um, DFID minister responsible for Afghanistan, people would come in to brief me on Afghanistan and present business cases on Afghanistan. And I would be the only person in that room who'd spent serious time in Afghanistan. I'd be the only person in the room who spoke an Afghan language. And you'd have civil servants who'd maybe been in that role for three months or six months trying to convince me to fund a police program that I knew was terrible. And that was a very odd relationship between a civil servant and a minister. And I don't think it's one that the system 
likes very much because the system set up for the civil servants to be the experts and the ministers to be the amateurs. Yeah, from my limited experience, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, and so what was your reaction to the merger of a foreign office and DFID? Are, are you wary of it? I'm very wary of it because I think DFID has developed a real experience and skill over 20 years in some quite complicated project management and dealing with the World Bank and the UN and working in humanitarian crises and managing an enormous budget of nearly 14 billion pounds a year. And the Foreign Office simply does not have the skills, the experience in project management. Diplomats are predominantly tend not to manage much more than a tiny little embassy staff, which you know could be, for many diplomats, not much more than one or two people. And they're not accustomed to managing a you know, 150 million pound education budget in Ethiopia with umpteen different partners. So the risk is that you take a department which has built up its skills and knowledge over 20 years and you shove it together with another department that does a very different thing. And they start tripping over each other, interfering with each other, getting into bureaucratic fights about promotions, and nobody ends up any better off. In a way, the timing around your promotion to the cabinet was rather unfortunate, as it was just before Theresa May announced stepping down. Uh, you threw your hat in the ring for the leadership and conducted your campaign in, a, in quite a different way. Um, and I think that for many people in and especially outside of Westminster, it was a very refreshing approach, which got many people excited, which isn't a word often used in politics. How did you get the idea and when did you realise the sort of m momentum behind you? Well, I... I came to it in an odd way. I came to it feeling that nobody was speaking up for the centre ground of British politics. And it started in a, in a miniature way with this funny thing called the One Nation Dining Club, which was a group of largely centrist conservative MPs, many of whom were quite pro-European, and realising that none of them was prepared to run for the leadership. So the group included uh, Ken Clark, included people like Damon Green, included people like Amber Rudd, Nikki Morgan. And I started initially, David Gork, I initially started trying to encourage uh, David Gork, who wasn't actually a member of the One Nation Club, but was uh, somebody I admired immensely, to run for leadership, and he was reluctant to do it. I tried to encourage Amber and Nikki, and they thought that somebody from the centre ground of the Conservative Party couldn't win. So in the end, it was partly through frustration. I thought, OK, well, I'll, if nobody else will do it, I'll run. And initially, it was a bit touch and go. I, the, I'm eternally grateful to the first four people that endorsed me, which were uh, Nicholas Soames, Victoria Prentice, Ken Clark, and David Gork, because I was initially worried that I would get nobody actually supporting me at all. And of course, as you will remember, this uh, race depends not on what the public think, it depends on how many MPs you can get voting for you. Ultimately, of course, I ended up, I think, at maximum with about 38 MPs supporting me, which was nowhere near enough to get across the line, partly because I blew myself up in, a, uh, in the last BBC television debate. 
I guess most people will remember your walks and the way you engaged with the general public and not just the Conservative members who had a vote in that contest. When did you do your first walk and how quickly did it catch on as a thing? It was a bit odd. Um, I, I mean, it caught on surprisingly quickly and I am not. I still can't quite put my finger on why because I wasn't actually doing anything very different from what I'd been doing for the previous eight years, which is I tended to wander around filming myself on my uh, phone, tweeting strange pictures and encouraging people to come and meet me. And I think nobody pays much attention to that when you're a constituency MP. And suddenly people started paying attention because I was in the leadership. I was embarking and I suggested people come and meet me in Costa Coffee, I think, began it. And people just thought this was hilarious. What on earth was this guy doing? Uh, wandering around barking, inviting people to come and meet him in Costa Coffee. I also um, benefited enormously from things that I got wrong. So I persuaded somebody to film me on my phone and had then been encouraged to pretend that I was holding the phone when I wasn't holding it. So there was a fantastic sort of fake news scandal about what's this guy doing pretending to take a selfie when he's not taking a selfie, holding his arm up in a very wooden way. Um, so it's a combination of that and comedy. And then I hope also that the content was unusual, that I talked about things that nobody expected me to talk about. People expected me to say that I was going to get Brexit done. And of course, what I was saying is that it was going to be very difficult to get it done. People expect me to talk about young people, but I actually spent a lot of time talking about my worries about adult social care and the and elderly people in difficult circumstances. I um, I mean, I saw it as a chance to just talk about things I believed in. And I think that probably comes across that I, I hadn't run opinion polls. I hadn't tested what the public would want to hear or not hear. I just um, talked about whatever I thought mattered. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it was authentic or it certainly felt authentic. And you also definitely didn't hold your punches. Um so anyway, shortly after all this, you, you left Parliament completely. Was that down to a sense of disillusionment of the direction politics was going in, or what triggered that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, the, the first uh, issue, of course, was that I was very uncomfortable serving in a Boris Johnson government. And he understandably was pretty uncomfortable having me around, so I couldn't remain in the cabinet. I think then, of course, I felt that a no-deal Brexit was a bad idea and felt that I had to vote accordingly and then I was stripped to my Conservative Party membership so that I couldn't really run again except as an independent in my own seat. So to some extent, I, through a series of choices, had uh, closed down my political career. Um, and the only alternative would have been to do what some of my colleagues did, but I don't think I would have been able to do, which is to say, I disapprove of Boris, I disapprove of Brexit, but I'm going to swallow that, change my mind and line up behind him. I had a very interesting meeting with him, in fact, um, where he said to me, you know, will you stay on? We need you. And surely, Rory, you're, uh, you understand that it's important to threaten a no-deal Brexit. And I said, uh, but Boris, that's, you know, I've just spent the whole leadership campaign saying the opposite to you. Obviously, I don't think that. And I couldn't, still couldn't quite work out, even to this day, whether it was that he 
didn't know what I'd been saying during the leadership campaign or whether he had chosen to just ignore it politely, uh, assuming that I would move on. Yeah, I guess there are some colleagues who sometimes say one thing and then act in a different way, which might have been one of the issues. But interestingly, that's not really punished. I mean, it's not something that um, that people seem to mind or complain about. I mean, maybe earlier in history that would have been a problem, but I, 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 I've been very, very struck by how people don't really seem to mind that. Uh, it's, it's not held against people that somebody will say one thing and then two, three weeks later do another. So a year ago, you became an independent candidate in the London mayoral race. You campaigned extensively until lockdown and then made the announcement of stepping down. I would imagine running as an independent must have been very challenging as it, as it, as it strikes me that in the UK, you really need a political party behind you in order to make sort of serious headway. Is that how you experienced it? Well, initially, things weren't better than I expected because, of course, the great thing about running to be mayor is you don't have a first-past-the-post political system. So it's a system where if you can come, if the um, person gets the most votes doesn't get more than 50%, you have a second round with just two people left and everyone else is knocked out and their votes are redistributed, which does help the candidate in the centre ground. So if I'd been able to beat the Conservative candidate in the first round of voting, it was possible that those Conservative votes would then have come to me, not to Sadiq Khan, and I could have won in the second round. But it would have been very difficult. And one of the difficulties uh, that ultimately took me down was the difficulty of trying to keep a campaign going for another unexpected 12 months because of coronavirus. Coronavirus really meant that uh, instead of the election happening in May 2020, it's due to happen in May 2021. And an independent has to, certainly in British politics, run a sort of insurgent campaign where you have to keep volunteers, many of whom are unpaid, motivated and going. And that's possible to do for five, six months. It's much more difficult to do for 18 months. And when you get into that kind of long slog marathon, and you get into the millions of pounds you need to sustain something at that length, the big political parties have the advantage. And so, yeah, one of the questions that I like to ask on this podcast is what object has had a big impact on your life? So that could be a book or a piece of art or, well, anything really. Gosh, wow. So I suppose the thing that's had the deepest influence on my life probably is the patch of ground around my house in Scotland. And I spend a lot of time when I'm not uh, working up in Scotland, digging holes in the ground to plant trees or move stones around or build very rubbish dry stone walls that then collapse on me. And I find in that earth, in that soil, so much meaning and connection, most directly to my father whose house it was and who planted a lot of the trees that I'm fiddling around or trimming or pruning or alongside whom I'm, I planted a lot of the trees. It's given me a great sense of kind of rootedness and identity. And I feel very, very lucky to be somebody who is able to be in a house where I can see my father's trees in the ground and my grandmother's uh, rose bush still growing and feel um, that connection of decades of people getting their hands muddy. That's lovely. 
And what about an individual? Is there anybody who has really, you know, has really inspired you? You know, I have been a real admirer of Michael Ignatieff for a very long time. He was quite a distinguished writer and television presenter in Britain, and then a Harvard professor, and then went to become a Canadian politician and became the leader of the opposition in Canada and the head of the Liberal Party, and then was defeated in an election and left Canadian politics and now runs the a university in, in Hungary. He is a very, very unusual example of a really lively, sprightly mind engaged in politics. And, and maybe that's a that's actually being slightly patronizing. I mean, he's a very, very considerable thinker. And he also, I, I feel very personally very lucky to know him because he has an extraordinary knack of being able to untangle the odd mixture of idealism, values, vanity, learning, anachronism that goes into driving somebody into a political career, or at least driving me into a political career. And what's next, Rory? What you know, what big issues and policy areas are you keen to advocate for in the next few years? Well, the most obvious one where I feel the most direct expertise and ability to contribute is in terms of working in what are called in jargon terms, fragile conflict affected states. But I, I mean places like Congo or Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan. I think the world is in a muddle in those places. I don't think we have a clear consistent view of how to work in those places, what it would mean to train people to work in those places, or what kind of programs we should be doing in those places. So I would imagine that one thing that I will be doing is writing and teaching about how to work in those places, but also maybe showing on the ground how I think it ought to be done. I, I like to combine talking about things with doing things, try to give examples in, in practical action of what it means to work in those places. And the second thing I think domestically, if I'm lucky enough to be able to do things in Britain, maybe within the field of prisons, which again has been the the issue that's really caught my attention. And then I suppose on a national level, uh, the question of Scotland in the Union, which I'm very worried about. I'm very worried another independence referendum is coming and that this time Scotland will vote to leave. So one of the other things I'm curious to know from you is whether you think plurality of thought is under threat in British politics today? Well, I certainly feel that we're in a very, very, I mean, we've always had a tendency to become a bit like the Bulgarian Communist Party, where everybody applauds the great leader and defers. There's always been a risk that we go to a slightly presidential system. And that's become worse, I think, since, uh, since actually New Labour in 97. But I definitely feel that around the Boris Johnson cabinet table, there is less vigorous disagreement than there was uh, around Theresa May's cabinet table. And I think it is very odd to see very senior cabinet ministers apparently being lined up to tweet small supportive things in a way that, you know, the people that define my vision of what a cabinet minister was, predominantly people like Ken Clark, uh, when I came into Parliament in 2010 would never have considered doing. So I think there there is a question there. And I think the, the question at the heart of that is maybe not so much about plurality, but about character and about how we think about the type of politician that we want. And I don't mean by that their life experiences. I mean 
their characters. And how can political parties attract those characters? Although I suspect in the first place they will have to, you know, they'll have to want to attract them. But what do you think is required for that? So I think, Laura, you've put your finger on the basic problem. It's not really in the political party's interest to recruit uh, outspoken, stubborn people who disagree. Now, of course, every party, though, has those people and can't avoid having those people. Often, though, they tend to have them on the far right or the far left. That's one of the dangers. The danger is that you end up with a choice between Jeremy Corbyn on the one hand and a hard Brexiteer on the other, because the membership base of our political parties is skewed quite heavily on the Conservative side to the right of the party and on the Labour side to the left of the party, which means that it's much easier to be a stubborn, outspoken uh, Jeremy Corbyn figure or, I don't know, what the right-wing Brexiteer equivalent would be, but the sort of Bill Cashy and Duncan Smith figures than it is to be an outspoken, independent-minded figure of the centre. Because you have to depend to get your seat more on patronage if you're in the centre, because the party members are not likely to rebel in your favour in the way that they may do for the Jeremy Corbyn or the hard Brexiteer. But I suspect in the old days, although maybe I'm mistaken, there probably would have been a healthy degree of disagreement, but it would have been aired privately. Um, and of course, in recent years, especially under Theresa May, almost everything was leaked to the papers, making it more of a problem that parties need to stump out. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. well, that was de definitely true under poor Theresa May. I mean, the amount of leaking and attacking each other was immense and not very edifying and not very helpful for anybody. Uh, so you're, you're right. There's a very difficult balance in all of this. On the one hand... I believe passionately in the idea of MPs with strong independent characters who don't get pushed around. On the other hand, I can absolutely see that for the business of government to continue, uh, you need a loyalty, you need people being discreet, you don't want people speaking out. And I think the only way of getting that balance right is a very strange, unwritten set of codes and values that traditionally guided the House of Commons and gave them their sense of when it was appropriate to rebel and speak out and when it was appropriate not to, and how the whips and the system dealt with those two different things. Rory, what was the most bizarre moment you experienced as a minister? I mean, I imagine that as a foreign minister, you would have found yourself in plenty of sort of interesting situations. Are there any that you can share with us? Yeah, I suppose uh, one of them was being invited to meet President Joseph Kabila in the Congo and driving out from Kinshasa on a very bumpy road and then turning off the road onto a very beautiful, smooth surface through various checkpoints to his summer house, going through this incredibly dramatic African landscape of waterfalls and mountains and, and expecting all the time to see some sort of Bond, James Bond-like lair at the end of this road and finally getting to something that looked to my eyes a bit more like a sort of 1980s Florida motel, a low-rise pink building with a few plastic chairs in it, where I sat a bit awkwardly and Joseph Kabila then came bowling out and proceeded to spend the next 45 minutes laughing at me about Brexit 
uh, preventing me really getting on to the conversation of human rights in the election in Congo. Uh, that was probably one of the more eccentric encounters. <laughs> that certainly does sound eccentric. So just to finish off, I've got some quick fire questions. What do you think is the biggest threat facing the UK today? I think in the medium term, it's the lack of serious, competent, effective government, particularly in terms of dealing with crisis. Our system is an amateur system. It's not well set up for emergencies, not well set up to deal with coronavirus. It's not actually very well set up to deal with things like Brexit. And the government has found itself sometimes the victim of extreme events and sometimes itself bringing extreme events down on its own head. And it's behaving as though it's got this incredibly sort of super effective, tough system that's going to be able to effortlessly manage those things. When in truth, it's got a system that I feel uh, is fine for managing the day-to-day and a relatively peaceful, calm environment, but is not very good at dealing with the unexpected and the extreme. And if you could pass on one piece of advice, what would it be? I guess my fundamental advice at the moment would be if you are facing an emergency crisis, and this is something I've obviously been thinking about in relation to coronavirus, always act more quickly than you want to. Always shut things down two weeks earlier than you think you should. Never fall into the temptation of saying, oh, I'm going to wait for the scientific advice. I'll wait for more information. We need some more data. We need some more research. That generally the flaw in all of us, and particularly in government, is to act too slowly, not acting too quick. Better to have overreacted and be blamed for overreacting than be blamed for underreacting. Who's your favourite politician from a party that you've not been a member of? I mean, not many of those. Not many parties I haven't been a member of. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I I enjoyed Paddy Ashdown very much. I mean, I was a friend of Paddy Ashdown and I saw a lot of him. He was a rather splendid figure. I mean, he was a bit of a rogue. He had a wonderfully pugnacious sense of the world. He was incredibly charming and fluent. Uh, He was fantastic at continuing to carve out a role for himself. He worked himself to the bone. uh, And I think he was a rather splendid, splendid example of what a politician could be, even though I think he was quite wrong about a lot of things. We disagreed a lot about, you know, what we should be doing in Iraq or Afghanistan or Bosnia or how to rethink the foreign service. But I think there was still something rather splendid and sort of quite kind of heroic about him. Rory, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been very enlightening and enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very, very best wishes. Bye-bye. Rory has such incredible insights and a wealth of knowledge. I remember the first time I saw him speak, giving the most fascinating speech on foreign policy for over an hour without any notes. I'm not surprised he's returned to academia. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and please help spread the word as well. If you have any questions you'd like me to put to future guests or any requests for people that you think I should really have on the show, let me know via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thanks for listening. Until next time.